May the grace and truth of Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Our sermon text today will be John 5, 1 through 18. It is printed in your worship order if you'd like to follow along in case you don't have a Bible handy. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand and give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. Just out of curiosity, is anyone in this room 38 years old? No? So no one in here was born in 1979? No one? Okay. The reason I ask is because I wanted us to see what 38 years looks like. Here are just a few things that happened 38 years ago, just to put things in perspective for you a little bit. 38 years ago... There was a near disaster, an accident on Three Mile Island. Some of you remember that nuclear accident after a fire. Uh, there, there was a fire at a reactor in Pennsylvania. 38 years ago, 3,000 Iranian radicals, mostly students, invaded the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took hostages. 38 years ago, China instituted the one-child-per-family rule to help control its population. 
38 years ago, Sony introduced the Sony Walkman at a whopping price of $200. Saddam Hussein became the president of Iraq. ESPN launched on cable television. Pink Floyd released the concept album, The Wall, with its top-selling song, Another Brick in the Wall. The general knowledge quiz game, Trivial Pursuit, was launched. The first modern bungee jump took place in England, performed by a group from the Oxford University Dangerous Sports Club. The average cost of a new house was $58,000. The average income per year was $17,500. The average monthly rent was $280. And the cost of gasoline was 86 cents a gallon. That was only 38 years ago. But you can see how much things change in 38 years. We're continuing our series on the Gospel of John today with a story about a man who was sick for 38 years, but he was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day. To summarize this story, I want to quote from a pastor who says, Jesus heals a paralytic, or what we would call a paraplegic, who cannot make his way to the miraculous waters in the pool of Bethesda. Here is a man who has been suffering paralysis for 38 years, the same period of time that Israel was in the wilderness. He has not been able to pass through the waters into the promised land. He has not been able to gain rest. And now on the Sabbath day, Jesus comes and with a word takes the paralytic out of the wilderness and into the promised land. The word of Jesus gives life. Now that's a theological understanding of the story, but I want us to get a little bit more simple and just look at the basic facts that we find here. In this story, we see a man who has not been able to walk for 38 years. We don't know how old the man was. We don't know if he was born this way or if he became this way by some accident or by some disease. We only know that he was an invalid for 38 years. An invalid. I want you to think about that word, invalid. I watched the movie Gattaca again a few days ago. I don't know if any of you have seen that science fiction movie, but in that sci-fi world, a distinction is made between the valids and the invalids, those who are bona fide and those who are not. Well, sadly, this is not just a sci-fi problem in our world. This is a real-world problem. It's the way we've all been conditioned to think about other people. And so we consider valid those with a certain higher cash flow or a lower body weight or a higher IQ. We try to figure out who counts and who doesn't on the basis of how good someone looks or how well they dress or speak or how well they perform. But the man we meet in this story is an invalid. He is invalid. He is a broken man. He is lying on a porch among other blind and lame and paralyzed people. He is near a pool of water in a place called Bethesda. He is a broken man in a broken community in a broken world. And he and all of these invalids are gathered at the pool of Bethesda 
which is close to but still outside of the temple. They dare not crawl or stumble into the temple courts because of a tradition that developed based on a misinterpretation of the law. Now here's what the law said. The law said that invalids were not able to serve as priests or as sacrifices. And so based on that law, there was a misinterpretation, a cultural tradition developed that said invalids are not welcome at the temple. And that message was so loud and clear that even the deaf and blind could perceive it. Addicted, broken, cracked, defective people are unholy and unwelcome at the temple. Now that was not God's law. That is not what God said. But that is how men interpreted God's law. That's what they thought it meant. So no invalids, outcasts, unworthies, or useless people were allowed at the temple. They were to remain outside, out of sight, out of sound, and out of smell. They were uninvited. Now it would be easy to look down on those Jewish worshipers and think, well, how crazy of them, how mean-spirited of them to think in that way. But you know as well as I do that the same thing happens in the Christian community among the Christian church in our day. And I'm not just referring to people who are physically broken, but people who are emotionally and spiritually broken. They often feel unwelcome and uninvited among God's people. So if you don't believe me, just look around at how many are missing among us who are broken, who are cracked and defective. They should be here. They're welcome to be here. We should make them know they're welcome, but perhaps we failed in that. This is not what God intended. And we know that because God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to show the world who God is, and what God is really like. So in this story, we see the Word made flesh going out to these invalid outcasts. He goes to visit the community of the invalids. They're lying near a pool of water in the shaded porch of Bethesda. Now Bethesda is not a word we use every day. The readers of John would have known exactly what the word meant because it's an Aramaic word and they spoke Aramaic. So I'm going to translate it for you. Bethesda means house of mercy. All of these broken, cracked, and defective people have gathered in a place called the house of mercy. This is where they go to be comforted and where they go to comfort one another in their miseries. Now, one reason they gather there is because of hope. Rumor has it that there were healing waters found at the house of mercy. According to legend, from time to time, an angel would come down and stir the waters, and whoever got into the waters at that time would be healed. They would be made clean, just as clean as Naaman was when he dipped himself in the Jordan River. Now, no one knows if angels ever actually stirred the waters, but... The prophets did say that someday waters would flow out of the temple and bring healing to God's people. And since this pool was located near the temple, there was a chance that the stories were true. There was absolutely no harm in gathering there and waiting just in case. 
the waters were stirred. What's at that place that Jesus goes up to a man who has suffered with something, a disease perhaps, that has rendered him unable to walk for 38 years. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you couldn't walk. Maybe you had a surgery. Maybe you had an injury that kept you from walking and that lasts a week or so, a month. But can you imagine how difficult it would be to survive day after day, to be forced to rely on other people, to make and keep friends who after a while might grow tired of carting you around or helping you? I wonder if this man ever echoed the prayer of Jeremiah the prophet who said, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me, O God, like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? When this man saw, or when Jesus saw this man lying there, he knew that he'd already been there a long time. We don't know how long he'd been at the pool but long enough to have experienced some things, which we'll get into in a moment. Jesus goes up to the man and just says, do you want to get healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, there are a lot of ways to hear that question. We might think, well, of course he wants to get healed. What kind of a question is that? But I want to suggest to you that this is a valid question that Jesus asked to an invalid. And the reason it's valid is because you know as well as I do that not everyone who is broken wants to be fixed. Not everyone who is sick wishes to be healed. There are actually people in the world who prefer brokenness to wholeness. And they will fight you tooth and nail to stay that way. Because the only way they're ever going to be happy is if they are unhappy. That's what makes them happy. So when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? It's a valid question. It's valid because, among other things, it rehumanizes this man. This question invites the sick man to open up and share his thoughts and feelings with Jesus. Jesus is initiating a conversation with him. He's not just overlooking him and going by. He wants to know what this man thinks, how this man feels, what this man desires. The man's answer, if I could put it into modern Texan, is, yeah, I want to get well, but there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. I've tried everything and nothing works. In Mexico, they have a saying... Querer es poder. To want is to be able. And they will tell you that to encourage you to keep trying something. To want is to be able. But I got news for you in case you actually believe that, that wanting is not always enabling. Sometimes you want something, but you just don't get it no matter how much you want it. This man knew by 38 years of experience that wanting to be healed and being healed are two entirely different things. So all of the wanting and desiring in the world could not heal this man's broken body. He concludes that there are two reasons why he would not be healed, could not be healed, why he's never going to be healed. And the first one is this, I have no one. And the second one is, I am no one. That's why I'm not going to be healed. 
I have no one to put me in the waters. When you look around at your life and in your time of need and you say, I have no one, I am alone in this, you are in a bad place. You are in a terrible spot. Have any of you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way, like in your time of need or in a crisis moment, you look around, who am I going to call? Who's going to answer? Who's going to help? Do you lose confidence in your friends and family in that moment? Do you just think, I have no one? Have you ever felt like you are no one? Like you're a doormat? This man does. He says, everyone's stepping over me. They're stepping over me. They're treating me like a doormat. I can't get into the water because people are jumping in front of me and keeping me out. Reading this this week, I was reminded of something that Norm on Cheers, this is old cut, deep cut, I know, but Norm on Cheers said, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. <laughs> I think that's how this guy felt. This is the classic can't-win-for-losing situation. Do any of you ever feel like you just can't get ahead no matter what you try, no matter what you do, no matter how much you want it? That's where this man is. I don't know how many broken people you know. Maybe you are one of the broken people, but this is something we know about broken people, is that they are often among the most lonely and desperate and frustrated people in the world. That's why they say, I have no one, and I am no one. So it doesn't matter what I want. I've wanted it a long time. Yes, I want to be healed. But I know it's just not going to happen. So he's given up. And you get the impression from this story that perhaps the waters had been stirred many times before. At least he thought they had been. Someone goes down ahead of him when the water is stirred. But he's not able to get into them despite all of his desire and effort. So frustrating. So disappointing. Now, I don't want to make light of this man's physical weaknesses at all. And I'm not trying to shelve them or allegorize them. But I do want to help you relate to him in some way. And so to do that, I want you to consider all the ways that you are like him. Think of all the things you have in common with this man. In other words, think of all the ways that you are invalid, blind, lame, or paralyzed. You have bad habits that you are unable to break. You have lusts and desires that you are unable to change. You have tried everything to overcome that secret sin. Yes, that secret sin, but you are unable. You want to do the right thing, but you are unable. You want to forgive someone, but you are unable. You want to apologize, but you are unable. You want to control your emotions, but you are unable. You want to look away. You want to close the browser. You want to change the channel, but you are unable. You want to put down the fork. You want to pour out the drink. You want to put away the credit card, but you are unable. You want to make friends, but you are unable. You want to walk and run in the Lord, but you are unable. You are an invalid. 
You are blind and lame and paralyzed. You are a spiritual weakling, stumbling and limping and crawling through life. And like the invalid in this story, you probably have solid reasons for why you are not able to be healed of your weaknesses. Years and years of experience, personal experience, have convinced you that your weakness, whatever it is, is incurable. You want to change. You want to be healed. You want to get fixed. But you are unable and you know that there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to fix you. No matter how much you want it, no matter how much you desire it, you are unable. You are an invalid. So what can you do? Well, in the story, Jesus shows up at the house of mercy, which is near the sheep gate. And out of all of the invalids in the porch near the pool, he singles out one man. Out of all of the invalids in this place, he goes to one and says, Do you want to be healed? Now, this is a picture of effectual calling. Jesus is under no obligation to heal anyone, much less everyone. And yet he says to this invalid, to this sick man, get up, take your bed and walk. The word for get up here is very important because it's a word that's often associated with resurrection in the New Testament. So when Jesus says to the lame man, get up, he's saying, rise up. And this is more than saying stand up straight. Jesus is actually raising the man's legs from the dead. He is bringing new life to a dead man. N.T. Wright says, here is a part of the inner secret of Jesus' work. He isn't trying to use one force within the existing creation to put right something else that's gone wrong within the same old creation. He is bringing new life, a new creation. It burst through into the present world, bringing healing and new possibilities. Now, one thing I love about this story is that this sick man does not question Jesus's reasons or motives. He might have thought, why me versus others? But he doesn't have time to ask why not everyone else or what about everyone else? So as soon as Jesus gives the word, at once the man was healed by the word of life and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus had the power to heal everyone near the pool and yet he chose to heal one sick man, one sick man among all of them. Why? Well, the sick man represents all of Israel. We learn in the rest of the story that Israel, the whole nation, is invalid, blind, lame, paralyzed. But God has come in the flesh to the house of mercy to heal his people, to make Israel valid once again. Now John points out that this thing happened on the Sabbath day. So when the Sabbath police saw the man carrying his bed from the house of mercy to the temple, which is apparently what he did, he went straight to the temple, they said to the man who had been healed, Hey, it's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. 
not acknowledging that the man had been lame for 38 years, concerned only that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Now, I don't like to defend these guys, but in, sometimes we have to defend them, and so I will at this moment. Technically, they were right. Technically, they were right. According to the law and the prophets, it was not lawful to do any work, any labor, or carry any burden on the Sabbath day. The law said, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Jeremiah the prophet came on and echoed that and said, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. So these guys, these Sabbath police, have the law and the prophets on their side, right? Technically, yes, but they're overlooking a big part of the story, which we'll see in just a moment. The man answers, the man who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. So he's implying that the man who had authority over his sickness, his weakness, must also have authority over his life. He must also have authority over the Sabbath. And so he says, the guy who healed me told me to walk, and so I walked. So they say, who healed you? Who is this man? The funny thing in the story is the man didn't even know that Jesus had healed him. He didn't know who Jesus was. There's probably a lesson in there. That in God's grace, he does things for people who sometimes don't know him. They don't have a clue about who he is, but he's so gracious and merciful, it doesn't matter. And we'll see why it doesn't matter. Jesus had withdrawn, and the word withdrawn there is basically he slipped away. He heals the man. He pieces out. The man looks around. There's a big crowd. He can't find Jesus. But Jesus found him. And that's what the story says. Jesus found him in the temple which is where you go to meet God, isn't it? You go to the temple to meet God because that's where God dwells. I love this phrase that Jesus found him. And the reason I want to highlight this for you is because if you're like me, you've probably heard many self-centered testimonies about how me, myself, and I found the Lord. And it's true that people do find the Lord and they learn eventually that they find the Lord because He first found them. But in the meantime, they talk about how I found the Lord. But in this story, we learn that it's the Lord who finds His people. Jesus found this man in the temple. Now, at the risk of making more of this than I should, I want to say that Jesus finds people in a wide range of places, okay? Do not overlook the fact that Jesus found this man at the temple. You've got to remember what we've already seen in the Gospel of John about the temple. The temple is not a good place. It's supposed to be a good place, but it's not a good place. Already Jesus has gone to the temple and He's cleansed the temple and He's condemned the temple and He's criticized things happening at the temple. 
What do we learn in this? We learn that Jesus finds people in a wide range of places. He finds them even among hypocrites, even among bad churches, even among religious hucksters. Jesus can find people there. And that's what happens here. He goes to the temple and he finds a man and he tells him the truth, doesn't he? He says to him, look, you're well. The man's like, I, I can see that. I can feel that. And then Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that's a chilling statement because it makes us wonder if maybe the man was in his condition for 38 years because of some sin he committed. We don't know that. It's a possibility. Sin no more that something worse may happen to you. All we know is that Jesus is calling this man to a life of repentance and obedience. He wants him to know that there are some things in life worse than 38 years of disability. Things like death and judgment and condemnation. But on the flip side, there are things in life that are even better than new legs. Things like forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, you are healed. You are healed. But don't waste your new life on old sins. Don't spend your new strength on old weaknesses. Spend your life walking and leaping and praising God. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. At this point, the man goes away and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And here's where the story takes a dramatic turn. We learn that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he broke the Sabbath by doing works of mercy, and he encouraged others to break the Sabbath by doing works of necessity, like carrying their sick bed out of a public place. And what we see in this story is something that we often find among hyper-religious people. In that in their desire to be obedient and to keep the law of God, sometimes they go beyond even what God requires. So here we see a group of men who are keeping the Sabbath strictly versus Jesus who is keeping the Sabbath holy. Big difference. They were dutiful, but Jesus was merciful. They broke people down who broke the Sabbath, but Jesus broke the bonds that broke a man on the Sabbath. Jesus gave a man rest and relief, but they gave the man a lot of tests and a lot of grief. So I want to say something about these strict Sabbatarians. The trouble with them was not that they were too strict, which is what we sometimes think. The actual problem is that they were not strict enough. Their Sabbath keeping was merely skin deep, but Jesus is keeping the Sabbath from the heart. For them, it was a duty to be performed, but for Jesus, it was a delight. He gladly loosed the bonds of wickedness and undid the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and broke every yoke. But they did not. So you see, there is a difference between keeping the Sabbath strictly and keeping the Sabbath holy. When Jesus told these strict Sabbatarians that he was working on the Sabbath, they lost their minds. And when he said that he was working on the Sabbath like his father, they started looking for ways to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath on their view, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, it is so easy from 2,100 years away to criticize these guys and to say, man, talk about overreaction. You go from just being angry and you want to discipline someone to we're going to kill you. How do they get from discipline to murder in five seconds? Well, they did. But I think we need to slow our roll and take it a little easy for a moment and remember some things about ourselves. And let me show you how we might actually relate to these guys a bit. Just think about the last 10 years and think of all of the things that have shaken and stirred you over the last 10 years. New to you doctrines and practices that shook and stirred you up a bit. You know by experience how hard it is to change your mind, how hard it is to see things through new eyes. You know how difficult it is to change your mind. And that's exactly what's happening to these guys. You know far more about Jesus at this point, just in what we've learned in John's Gospel, than those guys knew about Jesus. So on one hand, I think we can admire their religious zeal, but on the other hand, we know that they were so off base. They were actually onto something crucial here, by the way. And it's hard for us to hear because we live in a relativistic age where people don't take truth claims seriously except the one that there is no truth or there is no absolute truth. You believe God in your way and I believe God in His way and that kind of thing. No, we don't understand what it's like to have deep convictions that we are willing to fight for, that we're willing to die for. And that's where these guys were coming from. So they're on to something crucial here. They understood that if Jesus made himself equal with God, and it turns out that he was not God, then he was a liar, a blasphemer, a heretic, a false prophet. And on the basis of the law that God gave them, that man deserved to die. But if Jesus made himself equal with God, and he was in fact God, and is God, then he would be the most orthodox prophet ever. And they would be obligated to heed his word according to the law that God gave them. You can see this in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Now what blows my mind in the story, and maybe this is what blows your mind as well, is that these religious leaders seem to overlook the fact that a man who was lame for 38 years was healed. They seemed far more concerned that he was healed by a man who broke the Sabbath and claimed to be God in the flesh than, by, than the fact that he was healed at all. In other words, they saw the sign, but they were blind to its meaning. They saw the sign, but they were blind to its meaning. And here is the meaning of the sign. All of this story, all of this stirring of the waters, all of this shaking the world, all of these signposts point to these truths that I'm about to share with you. This story points to this. In this story, Jesus comes as the shepherd who leads a lame man beside still waters and restores his soul. 
He leads him in the paths of righteousness for his namesake and truly goodness and mercy follow him the rest of the day until he dwells in the house of the Lord. In this story, Jesus comes as the Savior who assembles the lame and gathers those who have been driven away and who have been afflicted. In the lame, He makes the remnant and He reigns over them on Mount Zion. He saves the lame and He gathers the outcast and He changes their shame into praise. In this story, Jesus comes as the Sabbath keeper who gives rest and relief to restless people. Jesus stirred the waters and shook the world by giving rest to a broken man on the Sabbath. And this was a sign of things to come. As John says later in this gospel, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But this sign was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So I put to you the question that Jesus put to this lame man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed of whatever it is in your life, whatever sickness or weakness it is in you? Do you want to be healed? Do you want rest? Do you want relief? And he would say, turn from your sins and trust in him. And you will have all these things.